0: This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast, Working Drummer. Today my guest is the one and only Kenny Aronoff. I don't even know where to begin with Kenny's resume. It is humongous. Uh, We're talking John Mellencamp, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr. The Rolling Stones, Lady Gaga, Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Bob Seger, Bruce Springsteen, The Smashing Pumpkins, and the list goes on and on. Uh, John Fogerty, of course. Uh, We've all been influenced in one way or another by Kenny's live performance, his signature recorded parts that we've all emulated in one way or another. He's also known as an author and a motivational speaker. We get into the weeds with some of the history of uh, his early days, and I'm just real excited and honored to have Kenny Arnoff as our guest this week on the podcast. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash working drummer. Any donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at WorkingDrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. And no matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. Before we get started, I want to do a big thank you to Rick Malkin. He was able to connect us with Kenny He is a wonderful and talented photographer and drummer here in Nashville. You know his work from Modern Drummer. Early in this podcast, we had Rick on as a guest. That was episode 65. Also want to thank some Patreon members that helped contribute to this conversation. James Osborne, Jimmy Allison, and Isaac Sanchez uh, contributed some questions and topics to the conversation. It was a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kenny Arnoff.
1: want to bring your game from c minus up to a you need need to learn what it takes to get one beat one beat or one song or one thing uh up to a because once you learn the process it takes to get one thing from point a to let's say point d yeah then you can start bringing everything else because most people go a to b then they get bored, then they pick another thing and go A to B, and then they get bored, they get, pick another thing, go A to B, and all you're doing is getting to B. Now, if you want to get to D, which let's say is the an, an A range, a quality of something, yeah. you have to practice, how do you get from A to D? Well, you stay on it. You stay on one idea over and over and over again. From And once you take one thing to D, now you know how to take another thing to D. And you just slowly, methodically, over the years, keep bringing everything to D till finally you are the, that A player.
0: Right, right.
1: You try to do everything, and you do everything. That's why people go, and feel like I'm stuck. Yeah. You're stuck means you have to change your method. Something's not working.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And instead of trying to do everything half-assed, do a one or two things, perfect. And I mean, sometimes it takes. I've learned some some things. And I've gone. That's gonna take six months to really own that thing, unless unless you're amping up the amount of time you're practicing. But with my busy schedule, you know, that's you know, you know <laughs> certain beats that you may not be out of your 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 box. You don't do all the time. And to own it, it, you can't do it overnight. You can play it, but you can't be at that A level that you want because it's just like wine, man. It takes a while for it to to vintage to the proper uh, level so that it tastes great. You can't can't speed that up.
0: And it's amazing to hear that coming from you, you know, at the time when you did that clinic – The Burnin' for Buddy CDs were out. They were on a regular rotation at the drum store, and so we were listening to those, watching the videos, and just all, like, we didn't have access to information the way we do now. So to understand your history was not as accessible in the mid-'90s as it is now. So for us to watch who we saw as this rock icon swing his ass off... It, yeah, it just it blew us away, you know. Yeah. And so in even listening to that this week, listening to you play that listening to you play tracks on uh, the Highwaymen, you know, and hearing in those whaling grooves and some of those other things in those train grooves that I've grown so accustomed to I- living in Nashville for 20 years. Yeah, And trying to own those um, I'm like, well, wait a minute This is the guy that told me to make three A-plus groups But he's playing fucking everything (laughs) Yeah,
1: well there is That's because I've been bringing Things to that next level For a long time You know, going back I mean, when I was a young kid um, You know, let's start from like The hardcore thing Where my passion is When I was a little kid I mean, everybody was trying to as they do with anybody, they try to pigeonhole you or they don't purposely do, but you get pigeonholed. Yeah. He's a rock drummer. That, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in my case, and and, and I always just loved playing drums because it felt good mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I didn't know this. I didn't label it when I was a kid, but you want to go even deeper. I mean, it gives you, you know, adrenaline, uh, serotonin levels go up, dopamine and oxycodeine or whatever that, that that chemical inside your body is mm-hmm. this thing oxytocin that's oxytocin, what it is o- okay
0: good that's a little bit oxytocin, safer
1: but yeah safer so <laughs> you know you I was just drawn to feeling good and so playing country playing rock playing jazz playing shuffle and it didn't matter so I was naturally an open person to all possibility and yeah everything was probably at sea level when you're a kid But as I got older and I started understanding, you know, as I'm playing with better musicians and doing heavier, heavier gigs, especially gigs like Seven Kennedy Center honors or all these TV specials that I've done actually in Nashville, you know, like uh, honoring, you know, like, you know, Kenny Rogers at the Brickstone, uh, honoring uh, Merle Haggard at the Brickstone. You're playing with all these different artists. Uh, You start, I start, that was a great, place for me to really learn to bring things to the highest level very quickly. Yeah. And so you do that long enough and you get you suddenly people look at you as that guy uh, that can do anything. And then they also know that you can do everything at the utmost quality, highest level. I mean the same the same look, you tell me that anybody I don't know one person's done this. Guy who plays with not just Pop country, in which is pretty shitty these days. But you take like Waylon Jennings, The Highwaymen, Willie Nelson, Chris Christofferson, and Johnny Cash. They're the you know they're oh my god they're the they're our, our, the real deal heroes. And they asked me to go on tour with them, and I I wasn't ready to leave Camp, But I remember the manager going, "All right, l- let me let me get this right. <laughs> You're saying no." to Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Chris Christopherson to stay with Mellencamp. I went, yeah, I wasn't ready to leave. Because, you know, in the Mellon Camp band, I was like, I wasn't the sideman. I was basically like the Keith Richards of that band. You know, it was like, you know, I was a recognizable guy who came up with all those beats and those licks that were signature all over the radio, not for one year, for a very long time, and still on the radio. So I wasn't ready to leave. But that same guy doesn't usually get the call to audition for the Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. They only called five drummers. That's just unheard of. You tell me anybody else has done that, that's pretty wacky. Yeah. Usually the guy who's, you got those four guys want you means you're a country drummer with a little bit of, maybe in my case, spark of rock, you know. Actually, I was a rock drummer adapting the country, but those guy, that same guy wouldn't normally get called to audition for the pumpkins Yeah, and then get the gig. That's crazy.
0: Well, that's why we called you, man. I mean, you know, again, working drummer, Zach and I pride ourselves on, you know, talking to in the trenches, hardworking yeah. drummers that are making a living that a lot of people really don't know much about, but are... But stories need to be told, and then once in a while, we could bring in, you know, Todd Sukerman or Peter Erskine, Steve Smith. We've had, you know, uh, the honor of having these people, but I'm like, man, can he just—he fits this lane in so many different ways, the, just working and yet super recognizable. Um, but anyways, well, you know, it's it, I have a question. I, I reached out to our Patreon members to hmm. see some— i you know, to ask them if they would have any questions for you. And this first question I have is related to what you're saying. <laughs> you might have already answered that, but this question, but let me get just get to it here. So this is from one of our listeners, James Osborne. I, I believe he's English. Uh, he says, Hi, mate. Merry Christmas to you as well. I'd like to hear Kenny talk about his process for preparing for performances, say one-off gigs such as recording a TV show, et cetera. How do you sound like you've been playing the music forever, when you may have only played it once? Please give Mr. Aronoff my best. He's long been someone I've looked up to.
1: That's a great question because I am, yeah. you know, like doing Kennedy Center honors. You only have a couple of days, or these big, huge events. I right, the first, the first um, thing I do. I desperately am waiting to get the songs. What is the material? In the Kennedy Center on is you only get it a week before. I mean like on a Monday and you're flying there on a Thursday. Or maybe you get it on a Saturday and you're flying there on a Thursday. And we're talking Anux Zeppelin or Sting. Or I mean these iconic players where the, the drum parts are I mean, note for note I play every note the way like Stuart Copeland played. At least that's my starting point. So I wait. Every note, out, and anybody who knows me knows I'm the most detailed chart writer. Every note, every nuance. And then I, I, I practice this stuff. And also, I, nowadays, I'll go to YouTube and get that version uh, because, like, for example, we honored Sting, Bruno Mars was uh, one of the guests, and he was doing a medley. And I noticed that Bruno Mars does a medley of police songs in his show. So I wanted to see how he's doing it. And he did it different than the original record. So I'm prepared in that regard. Now, the next thing is, it's very, very important. And I learned this a long time ago when I was first touring with Melissa Etheridge. You do never want to sound like you're reading. Oh, yeah. And now here's how, because remember I had to learn a three hour show with nine hours of practice time with Melissa Etheridge because I was recording so much so we go out there and I'm reading. And um, one night she turned around, it takes me about, to learn a three-hour show, it takes me about two to three weeks to have it all memorized. So I'm reading just to make sure I got everything locked down, you know, big intros, tempos, endings, all this stuff. I read it all down. And she turned around one night in a venue of 13,000 and goes, I can tell when you're reading. Oh, I went, that is n- not cool that was 1996 I believe so I went that's not cool so I started to learn how to step out of myself and observe myself while I play as if I'm in the audience or a producer going "Does that guy is that drummers how's that band sound and is that drummers how's that drummer sound is he playing like he owns it does he sound like he's reading so I started to do that. So I created this condition that now I, at this point in my life, I call it that you want to always be, sound like you're in flow. It's natural. This is what this guy exactly picked up on in England. What's his name again?
0: James Osborne.
1: James, James. Sorry, James. So James, you picked up on something that is that I am very fully aware of, and compliments to you that you recognize that because that means you're aware of it, too. And that is, yeah, I'm always trying to sound like I've been playing this thing forever, even though I'm meeting. Now, I call that you're in flow. It's just natural. It sounds organic. But always one foot is in that spot of if there's a problem, I'm going to go into serious, you know, focus on an issue uh, whether it's my playing or the band or something, so I I I, I come flying. I keep in flow, but a huge percentage of my brain goes right to solving a problem, and get on it real quick and real hard, and go right back into flow again. A hundred more percentage of flow. So let's say you're hundred, you're ninety five percent in flow, five percent in this place where you're ready, you're aware of. Everything that's going on, so you, if a problem occurs, you can take care of it. As soon as I go and there's a problem to be resolved, I'll go, I'll stay, let's say, 10% in flow, or I don't know, whatever the percentage is, but a whole bunch goes into fixing the problem. But you never want to lose that flow. It's like you're juggling both worlds at the same time. Actually, 10% was probably a little bit low. Uh, it, you've got to be able to handle both situations. You've got to recognize when there's an issue with you or with you and the band or with the band and how you can fix it. It's living in two places at once. And I, just like anything else, I call this thing, RPS repetition of any skills the preparation for success. You repeat that exercise of being aware and, and fixing it always sounding authentic, always, um, you know, uh, sounding like you're not reading this takes time and practice. And that's, that's what I've done. But the most important thing is to be aware of it. It sounds like James is very aware of that. So compliments to him on that.
0: It sounds like in conversations you've had in the past, describing these scenarios, when you talk about problems, it could range anywhere from the artist coming in saying, Oh no, we don't play it like that anymore. And you have to adjust on the fly or maybe there's, uh, somebody in the band that's not up to speed or like, even if you're not the band leader or the music director drummers in our community here, we know there's oftentimes you have to play the role of music director, even if that's not your label. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And uh, a good music director (laughs) and I've worked with a lot of them will refer to me as like, it's not talked about, but I know that's, they, they're so glad I'm there because I'm doing exactly that. I'm like the, the assistant music director without getting the title. Right. I, I've walked in when I did the Beatles tribute, the CBS special, the night that changed America where we're honoring the Beatles for the Ed Sullivan show. And another example, I was playing with, you know, Paul playing with Ringo uh, uh, playing with uh, Keith Irvin, John Mayer, uh, Dave Grohl, Joe Walsh, Jeff Lynn from Yellow, uh, Brad Paisley, um, uh, Pharrell Williams, and Alicia Keys and John Legend. Wow! All right, when I walked on stage this first day, I heard the, pro- the the producer on the side of the stage go, "Oh God, thank God, Kenny!" <laughs> now that made me feel so good, and I know it wasn't just because of my drumming. Plenty of great drummers. He was glad because he knows. That I'm very aware of the flow, and I'm, I'm very, very aware of you know what makes a show work. Everything from the teleprompter to I know where an artist is walking on and where the other is walking off. I know the timing of when to count off. I mean, I just know everything uh, it, about playing my parts and the show. Yeah. yeah, I know who has. I know who has to switch guitars. I know who has to tune their guitars all of it. I'm fully aware of it and make notes about it. I talk to the stage manager, the producer and the musical director and clear all this shit up to keep make sure when the show starts which could be a 14 camera shoot they're filming and recording, I know how to make that show work. And I also know at this point where the problems could occur. Like for example, in that show the stage manager was not on it all the time. She was supposed to cue me it with a flashlight, cause we're in the dark, when to count off, nowhere to be seen, so I know totally cool, I'm like she's not going there. I looked right at the artist when the artist looks at me, I'm counting off. I got my hand sticks up with them crossed with grabbing the attention of whoever needs to see that if and they split the band up this I hate this. They did this, I remember we did the Willie Nelson 70th in New York. They split the band up. One side of the band, one part of the band's on one side of the stage, and then the rest of the band's on the other side of the stage because they want the center of the stage to have the emblem and the cameras. They're doing it for visual. Meanwhile, I got Lenny Castro, the percussionist, a mile over on the other stage. We got two keyboards on one side, one keyboard on the other. I mean, the background singer is way over there. I mean, it's wrong. And so when I have to count off and I have to count off to somebody over there, you know, i got my hands way up in the air and I'm grabbing their attention. I mean, there's so many things to consider. Right. Uh, And I I just know about it because I've just done it so much. I'm not a genius. I've just, like I said, repetition of any skill is the preparation for success. Any skill.
0: And you have to be able to have the attitude of, okay, well this is what it is, this is what I have to work with. I can bitch and moan about it, but it's not gonna change because it's not me. It's not my show. It's this is the artist, this is they're doing it for visual, right.
1: Absolutely, it's not my show. You know, the, the 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 um a Navy SEAL or anything, Delta Force, those type of people, I've heard them talk about you know, they just focus on the mission, and they focus on being a team player, and they put everything else aside. Everything. It is not about you, and It's just I just think that's so amazing. Focus on the mission, and focus on us accomplishing the mission together. Yeah, that's, yeah. It. And
0: that's hope, it, and hope and hope and just the hope that someone recognizes that in you that makes you so valuable.
1: Well even if they don't I'm very much uh, at this point in my life about self validation which is don't you're not going to always get it when you want it so I turned it all in. It's like I am the, the the coach, I am the player. I am the commander, I am the the commanded. You know, I'm the father, I'm the son. So I look inward and just have this honest relationship with myself. It's actually made things way better because I'm not depending on somebody else and somebody else's mood you know where they're yelling at you because they just got divorced from their wife (laughs) and you think you're the reason and it's you know there's two things there's a challenge I'll have for the rest of my life but don't take anything personal and don't assume anything that is one of the biggest challenges when you have somebody yelling at you and they're yelling at you and you can tell they're trying to piss you off or make you upset or hurt you even, it's hard to sit there and look at them like a Buddhist monk and go, man, I'm so sorry you're having a bad day.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, while human, you may have had four too many cups of coffee, or you may not have had enough sleep, or you have a hangover, or you're going through a divorce. So everything is you're taking personal. It's the challenge of being a human being, but it, yeah. aware of what we're talking about is the start.
0: Well, man, I use that philosophy more recently in my life almost every day. If someone's driving too slow in front of me or I'm yeah. waiting in line at the grocery store yeah. and somebody's paying with dollar bills, I'm like that used to that used to piss me off and now I'm just like, "You know what? I don't know what's going on in their life right now." Yeah. And exactly. and it just and it gives me a lot of peace just a but yeah, that how that extends over to just working with many, just the people skills that are necessary to, to, to oh my kind God, of yeah. navigate all that stuff. Yeah.
1: Oh, my God. There was like a, a month. This is back in the day when there were budgets. And I had drums in Nashville, LA, New York, Indiana, of course, where I lived, Japan, and Germany. And I remember um, just flying all over the place because they had money. People would fly me everywhere. And um, um, this is a scenario, a true scenario. <laughs> so let's start with Monday. This is like in the early 90s, Monday. I'm with BB King and Bonnie eight recording with Don Was for a, mo- a movie, a Doctor John song, Right Place, Wrong Time, just killer. Yeah. Next two days, Elton John in the same studio with Don Was. Next four days, Bob Seger in another studio, another room in that studio. Don Was again, believe it or not. Then I fly to Athens, Georgia, and do the Indigo Girls. They'd never had drums on their album before. Totally different environment. Totally different movie. I'm like an actor in a movie, and I've got to ask the director, what movie are we in? I'll have to figure, what's my role, what's my character, and what movie are we in? And I've used that many times on, on, when I talk to producers. But anyway, I do a week there, and I'm adapting to all their you know, unique uh, uh, personalities and so forth. Uh, Then I fly back to LA and land and go right into a session with Willie Nelson. Then I do four more days with singer and then two weeks with Bon Jovi doing blaze glory. So, I mean, dude, every, every one of those artists is a different corporation, let's say, and I'm this great, businessman and i'm being hired to to go into these different corporations not like i work for one corporation i'm working for different engineers different producers different different artists different record companies different everything and my skill you know or my ability to adapt to every situation is huge and probably why i've had such a great career because it's not just my playing because you asked me about great drummers i can list the you know, 500 very quickly, great drummers. Mm -hmm. So there's something else going on. And I think it's the people skill, the ability to connect, you know, and then communicate. Once you can connect and communicate with people, now you have the possibility of collaborating with them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, it's, 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 it's evident, man. I mean, it's, it's so fun to kind of go through your discography and, and listen to all these different things and just how, just varied and different the artists have been and it's it's inspiring man, it's really inspiring uh, I have another question uh, from another uh, listener Jimmy Allison, he's got two questions for you as Kenny is a self-admitted workaholic, what does he do to keep the work life balance balanced?
1: <laughs> well things aren't really very balanced for me at all <laughs> I uh... I'm a workaholic. First of all, let, let, let's just say this much: you know, when you're a kid and you you say yes to everything because you just want a gig, you know, I'll say yes. Well, it's been very challenging to shut that, that 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 feeling off. You know, when somebody calls up, like I'm doing a New Year's Eve gig, and I'm like, and when when they called up, and these are great musicians, it's a private party, and I'm like. I said yes and uh, it was felt great at the moment and then I started realizing what are you doing so I've had to pen or write out 24 detailed charts Beatles songs Stone songs Cars songs uh you know um, uh, you know uh, Beach Boys um all kinds of bands uh R&B you know uh you know uh, the the Cars uh, uh cheap trick I mean all these things famous songs that are of certain tempo, certain feel, certain, and it's been a lot of work. So it's very, di- it's it's difficult for me to say no. And I get myself into trouble sometimes. I know that I'm triple booked in 2022 and I've got to make some decisions. So there is no balance. Now, <laughs> Um, you know, and I'm carrying three big hats, which is, You know, the sessions I do in my studio, on Common Studios, LA. It was very important for me to keep that always going because I worked real hard to become good as a session drummer. I don't want to give that up, and I enjoy it. Number two, the live thing, touring. You know, I tour with all these different artists. And the third thing is the speaker, you know, uh, inspirational speaking. I have an agent, you know, books and stuff. And then there's all the other things, you know, that relate to, you know, like during the pandemic, Modern Drummer did this, you know, legend series. So we had to do a book on me, 150 pages, and it's very involved with editing and pictures and all this. And then a drum book I got talked into because, like I told you, I can't say no. And that book is still going. It's been like, I think it's pretty much done, but it's a beginner book. I'm trans. You know, I did recordings of every different styles, like Pride and Joy by... Um, you know, Steve Ray Vaughn, then I'm doing La freak by uh, chic. And then I'm doing, um, uh, you know, uh, midnight rider by the almond brothers Then I'm doing a metal Camp song Then I'm, do- I mean, it's style, you know, bad company stylistically. It's all over the place. Anyway, that's almost done. But then I got all kinds of businesses and projects going on. So these, this is a full, full schedule that never ever gets diminished. It only gets bigger. And, um, this a, a a I believe that everybody should have a foundation, and here's an exercise for people: is that you should create your own Ten Commandments, meaning things that you look at every day on a piece of paper that reminds you what you should do to be the best person you can be, man or woman. So you know, uh, in my one of them might be mental health, spiritual health. The physical health, uh, you know, those, those three right there, practicing, I have a, a routine I do when I practice. It's a 30 minute routine. If I do that once a day, I'm badass. on tour. I'll do it three times a day. I can do it in my hotel room or I can do it on a drum set. doesn't matter. So I've got these, make sure you do that every day. Uh, you know, some people might be, so I have a thing called the eight steps to a healthy life. That is really important with regard to foundation and being able to at least handle an unbalanced life. And the eight steps I can go through very quickly. First one is lifting weights. Lifting weights makes you strong. Obviously, everybody knows that you're in pretty good health. It makes you strong, but it also elevates your hormone levels, which keep your immune system up. Number two, cardio. Only way you can exercise the heart. Also elevates your hormone levels, which keeps your immune system up. Number three is flexibility. You know, yoga, stretching, whatever it takes. That means you've got strength, endurance, and flexibility. Number four is diet. I could spend all day talking about what to eat not to eat. You figure it out. Four, supplements. I have a very strict supplement uh, thing I do, which keeps me looking younger than I am. <laughs> you know, multiple vitamins, vitamin D, quercetin, you know, and on and on and on. Uh, fish oil, you know, stuff like that. Number six, water, which I could do better at. You know, uh, coffee's not water. Wine's not water. Whiskey's not water. You need to drink water. And every organ in your body needs water. Every organ. In three I'm days you die water. You can go 40 days without food. Number seven, stress is one of the worst things for your health, mentally and emotionally and physically. So some form of meditation, and it could be just the obvious meditation or shutting your eyes and letting it go. Whatever it takes, whatever you need to do, To release stress, and finally number eight, which I really suck at, but I try to do good is sleep. I wake up after three and a half hours or four. I just do; it's it's in my genetics. So I make myself go back to sleep until I get seven hours, seven sometimes eight. You know, it it just keep doing it till it adds up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, 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 right.
1: Pretty difficult. When when I'm doing those eight things, the whole point of having those things in front of me. In my mind, they are, or on a piece of paper, is that at least you're looking at it every day, and going like, okay, you know, if you slip on one or two, you know, you you just keep looking at them. They're like that's what Ten Commandments are. Also, you look at these things that create a foundation for you to do the job you want to do, and uh, effectively seven days a week. And in my case, because I'm so imbalanced with being a workaholic, that that though that those commandments and that healthy life is a wealthy life. The eight steps to a healthy life are very, very important to make, make it possible for, for, make it possible for me to operate the way I want to operate.
0: When I saw you on that clinic back in the mid nineties, I remember cause you were right in the middle of a tour. You pulled out of your gig bag, a Ziploc bag full of vitamins and supplements. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, I was blown away. I was like, Whoa. And I was getting into that more and more. But yeah. man, I, I'm right there with you. The only thing I don't do in that list is supplements that I would like to be involved. But I do, you know, I gosh, I just went to the gym this morning. I do yoga every other day, all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. then on top of it, I've been getting into super hydration. So coconut water, um, yeah. you know, powders. And then I've been using this high Good. pH water that you can yeah. get. It's so a little bit more expensive, but... With my joints, uh, with muscle tissue health, all that stuff. Uh, now that we're playing more live again uh, yeah. after taking some time off, uh, I'm feeling it, man. So, and I feel the benefits of that hydration.
1: That's awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm with That's... you, dude. Yeah, you're an ins- you were an inspiration even even back then uh, on on that front. Um, that's awesome, man. I appreciate that. I might, I might uh, pick your brain about those supplements at some point. Um, hey, so the, the the second question, if if just briefly, if you can, uh, Jimmy Allison has a second question. Uh, yeah. Real quickly, he says, uh, I've watched almost every video he's made over the years, and I'm fascinated slash confused by his kick pedal technique. What I mean by this is he seems to play with his toe position at the top of the pedal like his toe in his shoe is touching the chain on the pedals. Um, maybe you play like that. I've never played like that. But to me, that seems like an inefficient way to play the kick pedal as the foot has traveled the full length of the arc. Does that make sense? I was taught for power playing to have your foot down on the footboard a few inches back down the board. Does that make sense, what he's asking there? Oh, it
1: totally makes sense. Well, I try not to put my toe on the chain because that'll make it- way more difficult right right right. You're, you're, you're like leaning on the end of a surfboard maybe he, he saw where the angle of the camera was weird or okay. i i was slipping but no i and you know on those on the tama uh you know um
0: Iron tama
1: pedals you know they they have a a little I wonder if they do they have that toe thing anymore anyway i don't think they do but the bottom line is yeah i i try you know i I don't overthink it. I just, I'm just i willing to move my foot wherever it needs to be to get the results I want. I'm listening to what I'm doing, and I do experiment. If I do really fast bass, double bass drum stuff, sometimes I'll pull my feet back down the pedal and sit back. You know, I'll make adjustments. If I'm doing more than um, two 16th notes with my foot in a row, I start dropping. I will basically vary how high my heel is up depending on how many beats I have to play in a row on the bass drum. And the more beats I play in a row, the actually the quieter I, I play because you you got to get that, that beater off the head and every stroke has to be off the head to get that even sound. Right. You know, da, 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 it can't be da-da, da-da. You know, if you're playing really hard, I'd bury the beater in the head. But when you start doing multiple strokes other than, you know, eighth notes where it's a, a reasonable tempo, uh then I I have to start to lower my heel uh and whatever, or pull my foot back, whatever it takes to get the results I need, I will do.
0: Are you cognizant so, of that stuff anymore or do yeah. you think? Oh. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yep. I'm very cognizant.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, one more question from a, a listener, Isaac Sanchez, a uh, longtime supporter of the podcast. Uh, first of all, comment, uh, your book is a great read, great stories, and fantastic takeaways. My two main takeaways so far, be humble and always be learning. I'm getting through chapter 12 now. I absolutely love hearing you read it. I highly recommend the audiobook for that express purpose.
1: Oh, that's awesome! Well, tell him thank you because I paid for that.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: sex drums rock and roll. You can get it on Amazon. I I paid for it because I wanted it to be done right. They they stupidly the, the 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 publisher who knew and it was in my contract that I would read my book or if if I don't read it that they have to get my approval and um, during the COVID the, they 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 made the deal with. Tantor the audio book company to have the book that they do have an audible book, but they never reached out to me and asked me next thing you know, I hear that they've started, my book is being read by somebody. I went, are you friggin' kidding me? <laughs> no way. No way. That'd be like having like somebody step in and do, you know, Gary Oldman's line in a movie or, or, or De Niro or, or any great, you know, Christian Baio you, there's nobody who can do it like them. So, I put a kibosh on it, and I, because I have my own studio, I started uh, recording it, and it was extremely, extremely difficult. First of all, you have to make sure the noise, you know, the the when you record it, a certain, you record, you have they have to uh, okay the room you're recording in, because they don't want a lot of noise. You know, they're looking for certain frequencies. They don't want certain frequencies there. Then, you know, it literally I was doing, I mean, seven hours a day and only getting 17 pages, 14 pages, 15. Yeah. And then when I finally, you know, we'd get, uh, we'd review chapters and I'd make edits. You had to have every word right. Once I got done with the whole book, we went through every single chapter and I had to punch in and to get your voice to be the same. And I started by reading the book like this and then I got like this because when I talked like that it came back like this. It was the weirdest thing. I would be talking with a lot of passion but when it was played back it came back like 20% down. So I had to learn how to be an actor to project and to get the you know the emotion to come through so that it would sound like this. And, like, you know, and it wouldn't sound like this. Oh, man, it was such a learning curve. But here's the heavy part. So I finally get the thing done. And, oh, by the way, yeah, so I talked to a guy who's an expert at these books in uh, L.A. And he said, dude, it sounds like that audio company. Be careful, man. You better hand in a finished product because the way they're talking and communicating with you, you give them something that's 80% done they may not edit it, they may just put it out. So I went through with my engineer every line and made sure the spacing between every line was correct. And if I said something significant, I left a bigger space. Like if I said, you know, know, I have a saying, it goes like, I'll never be as great as I wanna be, but I'm willing to spend the rest of my life trying to be as great as I can be. Long pause because I want people to listen to that. So I went through all that, and then you know, they'd, he'd fade out after you do a cross fade out, cross fade in to keep the noise out. Oh my god! And then we EQ'd it and mixed it. Then I handed it in, and guess what? That's what they printed.
0: Well, because yeah, it worked.
1: This if, if they got it, it was 80% good, well, they could save money by not having somebody edit. And by the way, they came back, you know, 300 and, with the credits and all the everything. Who knows? It could be 350 pages. They came back with only 15 corrections. Like I, like I had, instead of, I, somehow I missed, instead of saying and, I went and something, you know. Oh, my God. They, like, literally every word. You can't improvise. They said you cannot improvise. You can't just kind of wing it. It's got to be every word exact.
0: I tell you, doing this podcast, I've learned so much about recording my voice. And I think that my inflection is high and, yeah. and bright. And then I listen back to it and I sound tired. And, and it, that, I'm, I'm with you, man. You've got to be 120% to get it to 95,
1: 100. Oh, absolutely, man. And I was like, I started really projecting. So it was like I was not yelling, but I was projecting like a big haul to get the emotion I wanted to come out. It was unbelievable. I mean, you tried, you know, your head feels like it's going to crack open, you know, seven hours of that.
0: Well, I've, I've been enjoying the book. I picked it up uh, on the holidays here with the intent oh, of, awesome. of doing some more reading during our travel. Uh, I'm a little less than halfway through, but it's, man, it's been so fun, and I, I feel bad I haven't checked it out earlier, but I'm so glad that I have it now. And um, uh,
1: easy, It's an easy read. It's uh, interesting, right? I mean... Super have you gotten (laughs) there's two parts i was i got cold feet at the last minute i didn't want in there but they made me put it in and it was one was with have you gotten to the hank williams jr story no no of that and then the paul mccartney one oh man it involves elton john and i went oh man and i clarified with paul mccartney Was that a true story? He said, absolutely. Or he was bullshitting me twice. But where do you, oh my God. I mean, you know, the the hardest thing about that book was to deal with the two divorces and actually a third divorce, which was leaving Mellencamp. How do you handle that? But now I'm reading Mellencamp's, you know, I wanted to do it honorably, you know, and uh, I'm reading Mellencamp's autobiography. Oh my God, they took a whole bunch of stuff from my autobiography and put it in his. So when they wanted quotes from Kenny Aronoff, they never called me up or interviewed me. They just took my shit from my book and put it in there.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> I don't know if
1: that's right, but I'm, I mean, I'm glad I'm in it, but...
0: Well, this might this might help kind of you know tie this all up together. Uh, Isaac's question, Isaac Sanchez's question is: Given the restraints of a book, what story, topic, concept do you wish you could have driven home with more detail or emphasis that did not make it in the book or made it in, but you wish you could have elaborated more on it? This may be drum related or otherwise.
1: Very good question. The thing thing is that book was originally six hundred pages. The editor said, nope, the the, the magic number is around 325. So they were leaving out all kinds of stories. So So to be answering his question, yeah, man, that was difficult. I mean, there's a major story about me meeting Dave Grohl, and he's talking about this new band he wants me to check out in New York as I'm like coming downstairs after a hangover and performing with the Buddy Rich Big Band the night before in New York City with you know a whole bunch of other drummers, and um, this skinny little Dave Grohl comes up and invites me to the showcase, and I go, like, "Hey man, so what's the name of your band?" He goes, "Oh, it's called Foo Fighters." And I went, oh, "That's kind of a weird name." Well, good luck. <laughs> and I want—I wish that had been in the book. But he said, "No, nah, we got to get rid of some. We can't have everything, Kenny. And you can't be just come off like name dropping." There was another one. Story. Uh and I get they talked me out of it, but I wish I'd talked them back. It's to get right to it. It involves with the pumpkins, uh involves the Metal Camp band. Uh I'm recording with Tony Iomi and Billy Corgan. Tony Iomi from Sabbath and Billy Corgan from the Pumpkins on a Tony Iommi record. And it's the day after first day of recording, 13-hour day, 45-minute break for lunch. That was it, or dinner. And I end up at, like, two in the morning, Kim, uh, uh um, I'm spacing her name. Oh, my God. I was going to say Kim Basher. It's not Kim Basher. It was, uh, um, oh, what was, the, uh, you know, the incredible actress on in that movie, uh, All About Mary, you know?
0: Cameron Diaz.
1: Yeah, Cameron. She just made that movie. She's hot. She ends up on my lap at two in the morning with her arms around me and looking at me and going, man, I heard what you said to Jimmy, Jimmy Chamberlain. Man, that was beautiful. All right. The, <laughs> at 2 in the morning, at my that age, in a rock and roll bar in L.A., most likely I'm going to try to hit on her and suggest we keep the evening rolling, all right? And the publisher said, well, or the editor said, "Would well, you have sex with her? I said, No. He said, "Well, you're just name dropping. We're not going to put it in." The point <laughs> that I was should have hit home was I didn't hit on her, which is what I would typically do. The reason why I didn't because, and it's the theme of that book, is I'm a workaholic, and I fought for every inch of my career, and I knew I had to get up at 9.30 in the morning to do another day of recording. And Billy Corgan and Tony Iommi in that recording session ultimately were more important than possibility of having a wild night with Cameron Diaz, which it would have been a wild night, guarantee you. You know, she's sitting on my lap at 2 in the morning. So that was really why I should have been in there. So I'm wandering here, but to answer your question, yeah, I wish that had been in there to hit home that work for Kenny Aronoff comes over everything. Uh, And there's some stories I wish they were longer, but the editor chopped them down to keep the flow going. Uh, I know nothing about editing books. I know nothing about, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And as a matter of fact, uh, it was one point where I had uh, a checkbook in my hand and the phone to my ear called up the publisher and said, I want to bury this book. How much do I have to write you a check for to burn the book and not put it out. And he's the one that talked me off the ledge <clears throat> and said you need it. We'll get you an editor. Trust me, the editor will fix everything. And he did. Nice. So that they do, they cut and paste, it's getting too wordy. Get rid of that. Get rid of that. Get rid of that. Get rid of that. Move this here, move that there.
0: Yeah. So this the recording with Billy was that with the Pumpkins or was that something that Billy was producing that next morning?
1: He was producing, it was Tony Iommi's first record. Gotcha. And there was two songs we did. One was in three movements, and Billy was writing it and arranging it while we were recording. And I think that record's called Iommi. The next solo record that Tony Iommi did, I did the whole thing with uh, Glenn Hughes on bass and singing from Deep Purple. And it was a power trio, and we were going to be a band. But uh, Sharon Osborne decided, or convinced Sabbath, to get back together and you know you do the math sabbath's gonna stadiums and arenas our little group was gonna do you know big huge bars and you know maybe 1,000 2,000 seaters so yeah the band never played live uh but it was incredible record we made and and there's talk about maybe doing another but um And by the way, the first record I was doing, with Billy Corgan, it was like a a variety of drummers. There were all kinds of drummers and singers, you know, like Henry Rollins was on it, uh, all kinds of drummers, singers, musicians. It was an incredible record, kind of honoring Tony. And I was honored that Billy Corgan invited me in uh, to do it. But, you know, it was a very difficult record because we were uh, two days recording because he was composing on the spot and very demanding.
0: Can you tell me a story of your interaction with the second engineer when you guys were recording that record? Yeah.
1: Okay, so, (laughs) yeah, that's a funny story. Okay, so I come into the studio. I mean, I'm like, oh, my God, Tony Iommi, holy shit. Very humble, very nice, very proper English man. Then Billy walks in. He's all about Billy moves fast. He walks in, takes his coat off, picks up a guitar, says, Tony, play one of your licks that you're working on. (laughs) <laughs> Billy mimics it in two seconds Photographic mimic says give me another one uh, Does it then He looks at me And he points out to the We're in the control room Points to the drums out in the room Looks at me and points And I felt like man you treat me like I'm a dog Going out there. Go doggy go out I'm like well Hell with that. Anyway, I go out there. And what was happening was they were discussing things. And then Billy would say, OK, let's go. So I start playing. And at one point, he goes, no, Kenny, the chorus. You have to understand, I never heard the vocals till the record came out. There was no, I didn't know what was chorus. My chart was like intro, theme A, theme B, uh, halftime theme, purple theme, uh you know, all these weird and so Billy says, No, the course, I got off the drums, took my headphones off, went into the control room, went to the second engineer, and I gave him twenty dollars. I said, Every time these motherfuckers talk, hit the talk back button. Hit the talk back button so I can hear what they're saying. I didn't and when I said that, I said it very loud and I looked at Billy. <laughs> You know, I said, you know, when they're talking <laughs> get the talk back button done. See that kind of thing. And I went back out and every time they talked, the button I could hear what they were saying.
0: I love that man. I love that story. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what it was uh, What what podcast I was listening to and you're like, so I can hear what the fuck they're saying.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that was like, you know, you know, I was I had to take care of my, myself.
0: Um, that's awesome man thank you for sharing that again um well those are our listeners man I, we love our listeners and 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 that's cool. that's I, I, cool. you know it's interesting cuz as I was putting this these notes together and I was talking to my wife about our upcoming conversation I have a list of things that I've experienced that that uh, y- y- you've been involved with like I was probably 16 or 17 years old in Columbus at a school of the arts. And our teacher took us to Sasapa sound studios where you were recording with Blackfoot. Right. I forgot about that. And we walked into the studio. First time I had ever been into a, of, of professional studio in my life. And they said, Kenny Arnoff, the drummer from Mellencamp or John Cougar, whatever it was at the time. Yeah. Uh, he, he was set up in that corner and there was a pile of wood shavings Around, on the floor, no drums. I was like, "What? What? What is that?" And like, well, that's that's where he set up. That's it was from rim shots. And of course, I was thinking like cross stick. I wasn't thinking like I didn't understand what rim shots were. But I'm like, what? And that blew my mind. Like, wait a minute, no, he's in that band. He plays with John Cougar. He, he what's he playing with Black? Why is he here? And like yeah. that, you can do that. You can. How can yeah. you do that? <laughs> You were young. (laughs) Super young. Well, and and still, there's some uncommon, you know, experiences that that you've brought to the table and, and, you know, broken some molds over the course of your career from, you know, that very first, you know, involvement in 1980 on, you know, uh, uh, throughout the years. But my point is, is that as we've. You know, let some of our, our, our listeners know, hey, we've, we've got Kenny Arnoff coming on. We're going to be speaking. Uh, do you have questions to our Patreon members? It's reminded me that there are so many people that have been inspired by he, you directly through your, their, their personal interaction. I met Kenny. He was super kind and humble and helpful um, through your recordings, through all these things. And I'm like, we all have a Kenny story. You know, I think you're the Kevin Bacon of drummers.
1: Kevin Bacon of drummers. Yeah. That's cool with me. Well, you know, shit, man. I've been around for so long. I've been in the business for four decades and still, you know, doing stuff and staying relevant. So yeah, it would stand to reason that eventually in the drum world or the music world, and you know, you're going to have crossed paths with me. And I, you know, because I, do all those tv shows you know with multiple artists 20 25 artists and then you know seven kennedy seven kennedy center honors and 75 letterman shows i mean as the drummer subbing and as being on the show in like six snl i mean snl shows i just have done so many different things so many genres yeah i bumped into a lot of people you know
0: there's i think um Nick Ruffini, a uh, good friend uh, from Drummer's Resource, uh, one thing that you said to him was, it's not focusing on what you've done, but focusing on what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Does that remain true at this point in your life as well?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's like a running back that gets a touchdown. As soon as he gets a touchdown, celebrates for two seconds is thinking about, I need the ball again.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I'm, when Jack and Diane went to number one, I was, uh, as you know in the book, I was in the hotel room where I'd been fired from the first record I did with John Mellencamp, you know, because I had no experience making records that get on the radio to be number one hit singles, and the producer needed to get this record done fast, eight weeks, and we're talking drums, tape, they built everything around the drums, and that would have been a longer process since I was green in, in, in making records. Uh, so, uh, so... So when Jack and I went to number one, I'm in that same room, coincidentally, that when I got fired, I celebrated. I couldn't believe it. And back then, you know, because I hear people saying, oh, I've been on 20 number one hit singles. And I'm going like, what charts are you on? You're not on the top 100 billboard. Because if you're number one on the top 100 billboard, holy shit, you're number one for sure. Because back, especially back then, you were like played on every radio station imaginable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hit singles. It was like you were on every radio station, every TV. I mean, there so many of them. It was ridiculous. So, um, yeah, that was huge. Jack and Diane was like, you couldn't get away from it. It was everywhere. Yeah, And um, and so I got excited for about two seconds, and then I freaked out. Uh, and that was that feeling of like, oh, my God, i got to do this again. I'm not number one. Oh, my God, if people think I'm number one, I'm not. There's so many great drummers. What about Steve Gadd? What about Vinnie Calhuda? What, you know, what about Jeff Porcaro? What about, I could go on and on and on, J.R. Robinson, the Session guys, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, Steve Smith, you know, uh, every there's so many great drummers out there. And so, I didn't feel number one. I felt scared that I had to prove that I was number one again. So I'm sitting, God, God, I need to make another hit single, okay? But John hasn't written the song yet, so I don't know what beat I'm going to play to make his song a hit. I mean, my head was spinning. It's yeah. like getting a touchdown going, I need to do this again to prove that I really am number one. Yeah. And so from that point on, yeah, I was playing a number one hit singles for Malacamp, but fully aware in myself that I was trying to prove to me, to John, to the world that, yeah, that wasn't luck. You know, I, there was something thought out about it and there's, uh, uh there's, between the parts and the delivery, the recording, the vibe, there's something happening. And so, yeah, I'm, man, am I grateful that I made many, many uh, big hits with John Mellencamp not all number one in the top 100, but the mainstream rock and roll uh, album. You know, I was on a lot of, and then when I got my first number one hit single outside of the band on the top 100, Belinda Carlisle, heaven on earth. Yeah. Oh man. That's when I started to feel like, holy shit. Oh, this is awesome. I love it. I want to keep doing this. And you know, then I, you know, uh, meatloaf, I'll do anything but love, but I won't do that. you know, uh sold over 40 million records now you know bad out of hell too oh my god again uh let's see what's another one blaze of glory uh bon jovi i think that went to number one um uh sometimes love just ain't enough uh patty smith with don henley love that right of you know when uh geez or maybe that was number two for six weeks uh and then it was number one on the other charts but um uh, that was right when Grunge came out. And I, I made fun of, you know, I told the, the everybody, this song is great, but it's never going to be played on the radio. Well, I was wrong. When you put Don Henley on the radio with Patty Smythe, this big love ballad duet, I mean, it didn't matter that, you know, you had Nirvana and, you know, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden happening and the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, there's always room for a pop single. That's a, a great crafted song with great lyrics and with you know famous people singing, and I was wrong.
0: Nineteen ninety two. That I mean, I, it's so funny you bring that up because I heard that on my Spotify playlist, yeah. and I I sent a link to some friends of mine, uh, a, a band that I work with with a with an incredible female front singer. I was like, Yo, this song. They're, they're, yeah. they're, young, they're young musicians, but they get it. And we're doing some heart and we're doing some other things like that. I said, what about this? Oh. What about this? And, you know, I, I, I don't know what the reaction's going to be, but I'm like, come on, guys, you guys can do this. We, we should do this as a band. Because it reminded me, when it came on, I was like, well, I know this song. Man, what a fucking great song.
1: Isn't it a great song? Yeah. I mean, everything about it, right from the beginning. And well-crafted. There's not one note wrong. And the tempo, oh my God! The only way to play that song right is to play it precisely that tempo, not a, a beat faster or a beat slower. I mean, that is <laughs> just just this magical tempo.
0: Tempos, man, gosh, people, I wish I wish everybody understood how valuable. How much the song sucks when you play it too yeah. fast. Oh, you oh know. man. Oh, god! it.
1: And, you man. know, I'm guilty of it, too. Sometimes, you know, you just feel excited. And the song, you don't even realize it's too fast until you're done. And you, the singer turns around and goes, Jesus Christ. I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. That's why I love click. If I can use a click, I'll use it me just too. to make sure.
0: Me, too. Me, too. Oh, oh a couple things from your book, um, and if, if you can... That first Mellencamp record, without going into too much detail, you guys did some pre-production. Steve Cropper was the producer. You guys got into the studio, and Steve said, "You know, it's like, okay, I, I think we might need a new drummer. Let's do this uh, session. You know, drummers, uh, uh, the, the the hot guys at the time: Ed Green, Rick Schlosser. Yeah, come in." Can you remember the takeaway you had? You were, I mean, it, there's a long story in there of of uh, John saying, Look, we're not going to use you on the recording. You were going to, they were going to send you back to Indiana. And you were like, Nope, I'm here. I'm your drummer. I'm staying here. I'm going to watch. I'm going to learn. This isn't going to happen to me again. And the guys were, the drummers that came in were very kind. And yeah. What do you recall was your takeaway? what What, like, that was so important. To learn well,
1: to what was fun? I didn't realize it back then, but John, I, I, you know, turned on the Jerusalem symphony orchestra, f- uh, four years prior thinking that that's, you know, there was no school of rock when I went to school. So I got this big degree in classical music and, um, and it went from shit to Shinola. I got, Real good, as you know in the book, and enough to get into Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. So turn it down, uh, turn down certainty for uncertainty, which is rock and roll world. There's no guarantees. I didn't even know who to call. Anyway, four years later, I get in the Mellencamp Camp band. So I felt, wow, I did it. I did it. I stuck to my guns. And then five weeks later, we're in the studio making a record. And like you said, Cropper had come to Indiana and worked with the arrangements. And I think in the back of his mind, he thought, I got to get this record done fast. I need somebody who has a lot of experience playing drums, time, groove, sounds, uh, clip tracks, taking instruction. I mean, stuff that I had no experience with or not, or very little. And John didn't want to fire me. I I thought he, because he's the one that delivered the this, these, the words to me, I thought he was firing me, but oh, it was proper. And um, so when John told me, you're not playing on the record, and we were having a band meeting in a hotel room in the Chateau Marmont on sunset, uh, the words that came out of my mouth basically changed my life. And I basically looked at him and said, no fucking way am I going home. And the reason why I said that, I mean, I, Here's the emotions I was feeling. Loser, you know, fear, anger, overwhelmed, uh, piece of shit, I suck, (laughs) all that negative stuff I was feeling. And John was taking away, without trying to, he was taking away my purpose in life. I had decided this is what I want to do. I had decided that when I was 10. But I didn't know what to do at 10, you know. I saw the Beatles on TV. I asked my mom, who are they? She said, the Beatles, I said, call them up. I want to be in that band. I want to play the drums in that band. And I want to play drums. Fuck the piano lessons. And obviously, I didn't get a, she didn't call the Beatles up. She didn't, (laughs) you know. And so, but now I felt like, yeah, you know what? This is what I want to do. Still want to do this. And so when John was telling me to go home, he was taking away my deepest desires, my truth, my my passion, my everything. And that's why I turned into a fight or fight guy, not fight or flight, fight or fight. There was no way, no way. And I was going to, I started to negotiate a deal that would benefit the both of us. And I was just improvising. So I looked at him and I went, and he said, well, he said, well, you're in the band, but you're not playing on the record. So he said, I said, well, am I still your drummer? That's what I said. Am I still the drummer in your band or what? What's the deal? He says, well, you're not playing on the record, but you're still in the band. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to go in the studio and watch, you know, these guys play my drum parts on your record and I'll learn from them. I'll get better. And that's good for you because I'm still your drummer. Silence. I'm like, shit. And I says, well, okay. You don't have to pay me, and I'll sleep on the couch. And he went, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And it was humbling. I stayed there for four weeks and watched the drummers, asked a lot of questions, and saw what session drummers do. Made a lot of notes, made a lot of adjustments. And the takeaway, the big takeaway was, it ain't about me, it's about we. We. It's about the band, it's about the song, it's about me being the best drummer for a John Cougar Mellencamp band. Uh, It's about serving the the producer, the engineer, the record label, the other musicians, making sure that I get along with them. What can I do? You know, I'll ask drummers this all the time and nobody's ever answered it right. I say, what what is the purpose of a session drummer? And they're like, ah, time, beat, sound, feel, get along with people? No. The answer is this. Our job is to get the song on the radio to be a number one hit single. Anything and everything you say and do and play should be, is that going to get the song on the radio to be a number one hit single? That's like winning the Super Bowl. Isn't that what the football players are aiming for all year round? Yeah. How do we win this game to get to their best, then win the next game, and then win the next game. So we get the playoffs, so we get in the Super Bowl, so we win the Super Bowl. That is the North Star. And I didn't know that, but I started to figure it out. Holy shit. John walked into our studio one day. I think this is in the book. You may have read it. He goes, hey, listen, you guys. I write the same songs over and over again. I need creative ideas. I need innovation. We got to get these songs on the radio to be number one hits. And Kenny, if somebody has got a better beat than what you're playing, you fucking play it. And nobody owns their parts. We all play each other's instruments. In other words, I don't care what it takes. Get these songs on the radio. Yeah. Get hits. And then he walked out of the room. And I remember thinking, God, what a jerk. And, his delivery sucked. But God, I look back now and go like, brilliant message. Absolutely. It was like a tough football coach telling you them, look, it, it's not about you. I don't care what you did in high school or college. We need to score points, win games, get in the Super Bowl and win.
0: Well, speaking of number one, Jack and Diane almost didn't make it on that record. Uh, that yeah. was uh, nothing matters and what if it did record. That was at 82
1: no, nothing. Nothing matters. What if it did? Was oh, that's
0: eighty. Sorry, eighty.
1: And the American Fool Records won two Grammys, uh, which was an okay record, but it had hurt so good. Went to number two, first release. And you know, I have to say, man, I'm a lucky mofo because John made the drums so friggin' loud. Yeah. on And those records, because he wanted to blow any song that came on the radio that came on before us. And he wanted to crush and dwarf any song that came after us. And that being said, you put the drums real loud in the mix, and everybody plays real simple. It's just everything's going to be powerful, loud, heard. And heard so good I played left-handed because I was trying to dumb my playing down. I was practicing left-handed. when I came in the, the uh, rehearsal place, a uh, little teeny, like, was almost like well, it was a it was a dog kennel for a while. We practiced in a place where the drums were touching almost both walls. It was the smallest little place, you know. It was just on John's property. So, anyway, um, and I start. He plays this song, hurts so good, and I start um, playing left-handed to see what it sound like. John was blown away by the feel, and he said, "Whoa, well, Aronoff, why haven't you played that beat before?" And I'm like, "Well, I have. Almost every time we you write a song, but I play it right-handed." And he heard the difference. The feel was like almost like a beginner. He loved that. He loved that it was kind of like you can hear it. The tempo, the tempo's there, but the you can hear I'm like it's just not totally perfected like a right-handed player. And that's what John loved. He loved the charm of the swagger. The swagger, yeah, yeah, yeah. It affected what everybody else was doing. Also, all my fills with my right hand, and I could keep the hi-hat going. And when you play a simple song like that, and the hi-hat is very uh, audible, you take it away when you do a fill, it's a different sound than when you keep it in. And you while well, you're going get well, I'm going do bop and do do da. Hi hat never went away. It's like a big shaker going through the whole song. That song went to number two. I the Tiger was number one. We couldn't get past Eye of the Tiger because, you know, Rocky had just come out and it was the theme song for Rocky. That was promoting the the the, the movie. The movie was promoting the song. They released Jack and Diane. Jack and Diane was just a a cute little song. I I played cross stick on it, you know, the beat was doom got 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 a little ditty jack and diane, you know. Just a little battle. Oh yeah, life goes on, maybe hit the snare drum, not the cross stick, and then I didn't know what to do. I walked in one day and When we're making American Fool, most difficult record I've ever made. John was going through a divorce, almost died on a motorcycle accident, going 80 miles an hour right in front of me. Gets hit by a dog in the dark. Motorcycle blows up. You know, I think he's dead, but he's not. And he was going to get dropped by the label. John was in a shit mood. I almost got in a fistfight with him. Uh, Two guys got fired. If I'd gotten in a fistfight with him, I would have been thrown out. Uh, And uh, very difficult. And I walk in one day, and this co-producer's got this... Bought this metal box. I went, darn, what is that? He goes, it's a Lin-One drum machine. I went, drum machine? Holy shit, don't those replace drummers? He said, well, yeah, the Bee Gees are using it next door. And John heard it and thought, well, maybe we could save you know, Jack and Diane. It'll get on the our, our album. Anyway, long story short, I realized that I was being replaced. So I grabbed the machine. I turned it into a fight-or-fight mode again, uh, and I program it. And I'm like, well, i program programming. I want to be part of this. And I handed it to them, and I stayed in the lounge, thinking, like, man, what's going on? What's happening to the drummer? Are we the horse and buggy business, and the automobile showed up, and now we're being replaced? I mean, Phil Collins used it in air in the air tonight. Hall and Oates was starting to use it. I was like, man. And then I get summoned in, and they, John wants a drum solo. And off. We need a drum solo right here. And I'm thinking. On a ballot? Are you fucking kidding me? I'm going. Holy shit! Serve the song. Serve the song. Get the song to just whatever I do. It's got to explode through car stereo speakers. Explode through TV set speakers. And I was. I learned it's not about me, and I'm, I have to come up with something that's going to be great for the song. And long and short of it, I I come up with that drum solo on. There's a lot of tension, a lot of shit that went on, but long and short of it, I come up with it. That song is now good enough to get on the album. But that's all we thought. Well, back in the day, in the 80s, they had album-oriented radio stations and singles, top 100 singles radio stations. On album-oriented radio stations, they played every song on the album. And people would call and say, play that song, Jack and Diane, I like it. Or play whatever. Well, Jack and Diane was getting all these calls. People were calling in, play Jack and Diane, play Jack and Diane. So the label went, we're going to release Jack and Diane as the second single. And we were all scratching our heads going like, really? That's what people want to hear? And I'm thinking, God, that's awesome. <laughs> they released it. That son of a bitch went to number one on the top 100. Wow, a so Good stayed in the top 10. That's now amazing. we had two songs in the top 10. That's like Michael Jackson stuff. you know. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, who the hell's that drummer? And Mellencamp's career took off. It was like it was, and that's why I said when it became number one, I was in that same room at the Chateau Marmont where I got fired. I was excited and then terrified.
0: It's it's amazing. I, I I just so interesting the parallels between just the of drummers and our community seeking inspiration from drummers like you or. I know that you were friends with Neil Peart, and just yeah. the different personalities that you guys have, and knowing that he was feeling that pressure. I'm like, don't put me on this pedestal. I don't want to feel that pressure. And I'm just curious to know, like, how do you exude confidence with your clients and the people you work with, the, the drumming community, and yet knowing that, like, well, man, I'm, people are expecting me to deliver constantly.
1: Oh, dude, dude, I'm Tom Brady. That's where I look at myself. I prepare. I will fly in from Europe, let's say on a Saturday, and know that I have to do something on Sunday, fly somewhere or a different project. I go from the airport to the studio.
0: Yeah.
1: Or on the plane, I'm preparing. As soon as one gig's over, I'm preparing. It's all about preparation. Prepare, 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 prepare. That's in, on, on many levels, just not only on the drum set, uh, writing charts but you know the eight steps to a healthy life dude it's all about preparation I hear and the way or the way i record now it's like i the other week i did 30 songs for like eight different projects and i had to get them done because i was building them up so because i was gonna go away and i just so happened i had 30 songs to record you know and what I, I write everything out and then i'll rehearse them the, the day or the night before i have to record rehearse them enough times, I remember I was rehearsing, there were eight songs, or six songs for a, a, a documentary about the Holocaust, and there was some seven, eight grooves in there, and and they had to be very precise, and I remember practicing it, like, a. I thought I'd get through those six songs in an hour, I was there for two, two and a half hours, I wouldn't stop until I owned it, and then there was 11 songs from two guys flying in from Germany, and those parts were well-defined, and some there was a 7, 8 in there, too, and some weird grooves I wouldn't normally do because they were programmed. Dude, I mean, I practiced till like, 1 in the morning because if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to sleep that night. And because I did, when I came in the next day and started recording, I could just perform. That's what I like. I'm at that point in my career where it's like it's so fun when you walk in And I got the sounds ready because I got my studio, everything's mic. I go to my engineer. Let's go. We get a take and go, let's do it again. Get a second take. Let's do it again. Third take. I went, I'm going to try something different. Do it again. Usually if I get the take exactly the way they programmed it, then the next take I step out of the box, step out of the box a little bit more. And then I'll send them two or three takes. And that's it. Next song. Let's go. And I just perform. I'm performing, I like to get full takes, I don't like to punch in, I will if I have to, but you hear a difference between when you do a full take and when you don't.
0: Right, right. You
1: hear, right. You hear this performance. So preparation is everything. And and I do feel the pressure of being Kenny Aronoff and people expecting it, everything I do. Even this 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 band I just rehearsed with 24 songs last night, uh, for these for this New Year's Eve gig and they make it sound like, oh man, well you know, you don't know, you know the songs. Do I? I haven't played them in a long time, so how well can I play them? I don't care if it's Beatles, stones, those are the hardest because the parts are so defining, they're so simple. And at the end of the rehearsal, those guys were going like they were wowed because of my preparation to detail, time, feel, groove, everything. And I loved it. I love being that prepared. You know, BG songs, you know, with 16th note hi-hat parts with one hand that you don't usually do with all this funky stuff going underneath. And, you know, I'll practice today. I'll practice tomorrow. And New Year's Eve will be easy peasy. But I don't take anything for granted. Like I said, anything can go wrong at any moment, and I'm I'm very comfortable being under pressure. It's a normal place for me now, and I do not take anything for granted. I know that at any moment, shit can go wrong, and I know that I'm going to have to solve it. I feel like Tom Brady, like sometimes he gets, he has interceptions, you know, and he just brushes this aside. The game is four quarters, the season is long, and Tom being like Tom Brady, being prepared, he's mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually prepared before he walks on the field. He's gone over everything. But here's the next part. And I'm fully aware of this. And when you can accept this, then you will be able to have a pretty amazing life and have everything in perspective. And that is when in football terms, when he's on the line and he's when the ball is snapped, it's adapt or die. Meaning doesn't matter how prepared he is. That defense is trying to mess him up, trying to fuck him up, and shit goes wrong. You got twenty-two players on the field when that ball snapped. It's a combination of mental and physical, you know, you know, uh, skills at the highest level, and every move anybody makes affects other people, and so a lot of things change when that ball snapped. He's the king of understanding, adapt or die. Things don't work out the way he wanted that play. He's learned from that that might benefit him in the fourth quarter if this is the first quarter. So I accept that. Adapt or die means, hey, man, life, no matter how much you prepare, you can never perfect how things are going to work out. And when you accept it and you just go, okay, okay, all right, that didn't work out the way I wanted. I don't believe in mistakes or failures. They're just events that help you get better in life. Mm. With that attitude, being prepared and adapt or die, Uh, And I'm feeling the pressure that everybody's looking at me like a Tom Brady. I'm comfortable with that. I mean, I'm not saying I'm feeling comfortable, but I accept it and feel good that I understand that that is just life. There you go. That's the takeaway.
0: That's amazing. I I wrote this down in my notes, uh, and and I feel like it's somewhat apropos with what you're speaking of. I saw this in a movie two nights ago, and I'm like, I got to write this in my notes to Kenny. Yeah. The quote is from Winston Churchill.
1: Oh, deuce! I'm a Churchill freak. Is that from The Darkest Hour? It is. I've watched it 25, 30... I'm watching it again. It's one of my all-time favorite movies.
0: I watched it two nights ago. Oh. I watched it. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Really. Dude, I love Churchill's quotes. Yeah. It's like, a, you know, a, a, well, I can't remember, it's about the pessimist and the optimist. You know, a, a, the pessimist does not see the opportunity in something that's not good. Where That's, I'm paraphrasing, but the optimist sees the the opportunity in every difficulty. Yeah. Something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and yeah.
1: So, there's an opportunity in any difficult situation, an incredible opportunity. I'm am I'm an optimist. Not a pessimist, yeah. At all. Oh man, that that mm, he's a hero of
0: mine. That's amazing. Well, uh, that-
1: do you remember that scene where Halifax and uh, Chamberlain stupidly, stupidly wanted to negotiate with Hitler through Mussolini? Right. That's right. like negotiating with the devil through the next worst thing than the devil. And uh, he looks at them and goes. When will you learn? When will you learn? You cannot negotiate with a tiger when you have your head in its mouth.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's so so many. Uh, I'm an optimist. It does not seem too much use being anything else. I love it. Yeah, there's there's so there's so many great ones.
1: Name another. Read another.
0: Uh, uh, well, if you're going through hell, keep going. It's a classic. <laughs> uh, to improvise is to change. To be perfect is to change often. Jesus. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I it's it, well. Two of my favorites is uh, I may be drunk, miss, but in the morning I'll be sober, and you'll still uh, be ugly. <laughs> I love that one. I love that one. Yeah, <laughs> I love that one. yeah. And, and 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 this one is this one seems to stand the test of time. You can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> so frustrating.
1: Uh, right now, we sure are trying a lot of Holy things. Holy
0: <laughs> shit, we are trying everything else. Hey, I, have, <laughs> I, I I want to respect your time. I have one last question for my co-host, if that if that's okay. Uh, yeah. Real quick. So this is from Zach. He said, I read an interview with him years ago where he was talking about how, how all kinds of producers were telling him, I really want to use you, but I can't afford you. And he'd say, well, what can you afford? Just keeping himself busy all the time, not adhering to any sort of rate, seemingly. That was probably 15 years ago. And he was wondering if it still applies today. Just keeping yourself busy.
1: Well, I mean, yes and no. Um, I've got a little bit more boundaries, but I I like that kind of approach where you, uh, if you're comfortable with setting your fee and that's it, take it or leave it. Fantastic. That's great. You have to be willing to lose gigs if you're setting your boundaries and your mark at a certain fee or like in in my class, case, I, I fly first class now, you know, I just, that's what it is. I mean, I, you know, I've just, I'm, I'm in the sky for so all the time, I, toy buses, I'm flying all over the place. It's like, I, I'm finally sick of of all of that or I don't love it or, you know, I just want to be as good as possible. That's what I shouldn't say. I'm sick of it. I just want to be as comfortable. So I say I fly first class used to be I'd ask and if they didn't then they I'd go, okay. But now I go, No, I I really need that. Yeah. And there's a couple other things. And um but is with with but when you're willing to set a boundary, but be ready to be not hired. You know, that's fine. If you're comfortable with that, fine. Back in the day, fifteen years ago, I thought, well and I even will say it now but uh, I'll go like, okay, this is my fee. And if somebody says, well, would you do it for this? I'll consider it and I'll think about it. And there's all kinds of factors involved. Like it might be how hard, the us say it's recording, how hard the songs are, uh, who, what my relationship with this person is. Uh, you know, I might consider But I try to stay very strict on... My fee, especially in my studio, because I want it to be the same fair for all the people that hire me. I want it to be fair for everybody, the same. Why am I charging less for this person and more for that person? But occasionally I'll make, you know, it's my brother's client's son. You know, I might make a break, a deal, a little bit of a deal. But I try not to. Uh, because of what I just said, I want to be fair for everybody. Yeah. Now, if I'm being called in to do a studio, uh, a session in somebody else's studio, you know, and there's a budget, and they'll say, Well, we're going to do this much per day. And I say, Well, you say a little bit more. He says, well, well, how about if we go just from 11 to six, less hours? I'll go, Okay. Or if they go, This is favored nations, everybody's getting this. Then I have to decide, Well, if I want to do it or not, you know. Um. It's not a clear answer. I'm sorry, but that's well,
0: yeah. He 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 continues on. He says he, he just like uh, I just like the idea that no drummer is too big or too small to work on a sliding scale. And I wonder what he'd have to say about that. It seems to me that this approach has been one of the keys to his longevity.
1: Yeah, I'd say that it, it, it definitely. The will. The here's what it comes under the. The willingness to have a discussion, right? Which, by the way, is, seems to be lacking in the world today. But the thing is, is the willingness to have a discussion about anything. Yeah, you know, where you're open. Yeah, well, you know, I really want to do this. Let's see if we can make this work, and work within that. And then, uh, at least the people feel you might come to some common ground. At least the people you're talking to feels like you know what. You appreciate them. They have a. You're not just a piece of uh, meat. You know. You're not. You know, with humans involved here, right? I you know, I asked Elton John to change his tour dates once, and he didn't. <laughs> of, course he didn't. <laughs> yeah, of course he didn't. Of course, he do that. And I couldn't. Tour, I didn't tour with him. I. Uh, I think I asked. No, I didn't ask Mick Jagger. I might have. <laughs> I guy was going to go make a record and tour, and they kept moving the dates, and I finally couldn't do it. I think I might have asked him, "Could you move it to this?" And damn, he didn't. I can't, I can't imagine why. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Man, I had an epiphany probably about twenty years ago when I was listening to you, and I was like, "Man, I hear especially the Mellencamp stuff. I hear like, I hear Charlie Watts on Eleven. He must have been such a huge influence on you as far as just rock drumming from a young age."
1: Well, you know, he you couldn't not be influenced by him because it was it was all over the radio. But the big thing about me having, yes, Charlie Watts on steroids, Mellencamp, huge Charlie Watts fan, huge Stones fan.
0: Okay. And yeah.
1: That, that, and I picked it up. And you know what, when John, when I first got in the band, I'd been playing fusion music and it was all, you know, big, big drum set, you know, Billy Cobham was my idol. John, like he handed me a humongous pile of Stones records and other, other bands that, where the drumming, drumming was simple. And he, he said, learn this shit. And I remember in the second year of being in that band, going, man, if I don't learn to love what Charlie Watts does, I should quit because mm. I'll never be good. I cannot believe I said that to myself. I mean, I believe it, but like, I was really being honest. Like, you know, dude, you, you know what you, I had that was an epiphany. I was like, man, if you don't learn to love playing simple, you're never gonna sound good doing it. Because you, that's the amazing thing about recording is you can hear what somebody's feeling. That's amazing, I remember recording Hurt So Good, and I, and I come into the studio and I'm thinking, God, man, you know, Jeff Beccaro gets to play all those cool beats and Stuart Copeland and Bonham, and, and I'm playing this simple, you know, like Paul Bunyan type of beat. <laughs> and, and then they did the playback, and of course the drums were very loud, and I went, oh my God, I get it, I get it. This is amazing hell with the part I can feel every thing I was going through when I recorded, I can feel my emotion. I can feel my fear. I can feel my, my intensity. And I went, I get it now. And that was about two years after being in a band. I went, I get it now. So now just fast forward. I'm doing a music cares honoring Bob Dylan. I'm playing with like nine different artists, big names. And, uh, you know, we had about two hours after the big rehearsal, the day of the of the, the shoot and the recording, and I still, the room seemed bright to me. So I told the engineer, listen, I'm going to switch to 19-inch K-crashes. Tell me if this is better for you. And so I was playing just a simple beat. Got, 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 crash, got, got, crash, got. No fills, just really simple so that I didn't get in the way of the purpose, which was the audio, the sound of the drum set with new cymbals. The drummer from a Los Lobos band is looking at me from way over, and their band's playing, and he's smiling, shaking his head like, geez. And then he walks over to me after I'm done, and he's smiling. I went, hey, man, what's up? He goes, how do you do that? I went, what? How do you make that simple beat that a two-year-old can play sound and feel so good. And man, I said, dude, compliments to you that you, it's not a compliment to me. I think it's a compliment to you that you recognize how important that is. I said, dude, that is my challenge every day. Every time I get on a drum set, I am trying to get my brain and my heart. I'm chasing after a sound the balance between hi hat, snare drum, and kick drum, and and while I'm playing, my everything's adjusting like a, a robot or, or a computer adjusting to get that sound I'm chasing after. All day and all night, I'm chasing after something that I think is amazing, and I can't tell you exactly what that is. But one thing would be like John Bonham doing cashmere or something. You know, it's just relentless and amazing with feel and tone and balance and all this shit so that that's what i'm doing so i'm so honored that you and complimented that you recognize that in my playing but compliments to you that you
0: recognized it right Right. you've got it in you it's easy to get distracted man there's so much flash and stuff that dr- we get all drummy drummer about stuff and yeah yeah and it's exciting and it's what motivates us especially at a young age but I think your recollection of that epiphany in your life of I've got to learn to love Charlie Watts is something that yep. I think we all went through or hopefully yep. went through if you want to be a busy player mm-hmm. yeah exactly. Yeah,
1: exactly. And when Charlie Watts died, Sirius Radio called me up and asked me to do a, a special honoring him, which was a huge honor to me. And so I, they said ten songs. I went, no way, Stones. I got to do twenty songs. So I picked twenty songs and I researched them. And oh my God, you know, when I was listening to all the songs and refreshing my memory on, you know, his input on the on the Stones, it was ridiculous mm-hmm.
0: what
1: the, you know his feel you know what he didn't do like the first song i ever heard the stones was on the it was on the radio and it was on the i went and saw a movie in the movie theater called the tammy show it was just all a bunch of uh, bands everything from james Bond to the stones to the supremes to uh you know just all over the map it was incredible and the song i heard was satisfaction he only does one thing Only one thing in the whole song, kick, snare, hi-hat, no fills, no crash. He knew if you did one thing to to get away from that beat, the whole song would kind of get disrupted. How did he know that? Young kid. Why didn't he go 16th notes around the drums? Or da, 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 Or but, but, but. I mean, he didn't. Even in the break. Hey, hey, Just drums. He could have, yeah. but he didn't. Oh. Brilliant, man, man. Way
0: more.
1: Man. So mature. I love it. So, I love it. I mean, it wasn't by accident. He knew. That that's what he should do. Maybe he was influenced by Motown, whatever. Motown, they had beats. Get that ticket up, whatever it is. He did not one friggin' fill. And when I was a kid, I was probably going, I can do that. No, you can't. You would have played a million fills.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And not only that, not only the choices that you make, but can you play it like you were describing with passion and conviction and, and know how to play simple beats, but... Like in in such a way that is so convincing, man. Every yeah. every time I, uh, so many of us that play in bands that that cover different artists, like we've played hurt so good. We've played these songs, and there's a mentality like, okay, here we go. And if they somebody calls hurt so good, I'm gonna kick it off, and I'm, I've gotta I've gotta feel it, man. I gotta think yeah. like Kenny, and I've gotta play it. It's gonna be simple. I'm not gonna go. Yeah. I'm gonna do anything else, but. But of course I didn't know you were playing left-hand lead. So now that's my new mission in life. If that song gets called again, I'm playing left-hand lead.
1: And your hi-hat's a little bit, it's a little bit sloppier, a little bit, not as crisp or whatever it is. It's mm. different.
0: Big shout out to Rick Malkin for connecting us. Um, hilarious, yeah. talented photographer. Um, known him for years since I moved here to Nashville. And, um, so I I want to th- uh, shout out to him. I wanted to do that early on in this episode, but I wanted to do that before we uh, disconnected here. Um, but man, I I can't thank you enough for taking some time to speak with us uh, and and just share your insight. I encourage everyone to check out. Um, well, you have multiple books, but uh, the Sex Drums Rock and Roll is. Yeah. Th- there's so much in that that we could go on. I. Any time that you would want to come back on and speak to our community, uh, we would welcome it in a heartbeat because um, there's so many roads we can go down. And, and again, all my notes, uh, we just we don't even get through all of them.
1: Um. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that's usually the case because, I mean, there's just so many bands I played with, you know. Yeah. Going with Chicken Foot, you know, the super group. With two guys from Van Halen, uh, you know, with Joe Satriani. Or What about Michelle Branch? The, yeah. You know, the, I, I put positioned myself with a new artist, which I recorded her first two records with Vinnie Caluta Or, you know, uh, the Kennedy Center Honors. Whoo, that's heavy, man. The, the Obama inauguration, uh, or, or, or touring with the Pumpkins when they were the biggest alternative band in the world. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many stories.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's all good.
1: L- L- working with Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein and Sergio Zara from the Boston... Symphony Orchestra, you know, performing a violin concerto, a virtuosic violin concerto I memorized and learned, played on marimba with a 60-piece orchestra in an opera hall the size of the New York Met when I was 22, you know, practicing two, three hours a day for 365 days for one of my four pieces on a senior recital. I mean, that's like bizarro land. That's like, wow, why would
0: you do that? That sets the standard. I want to hear the story of you and your brother distracting Norman Rockwell while you stole his cigarettes.
1: (laughs) You want me to tell briefly right now? Yeah, sure, man. Norman Rockwell is one of the most famous American illustrators. We were like in second grade, and uh, my mom was friends with them. We went over there, and my best friend's older brother, (laughs) he was only probably 14, was smoking cigarettes, and so I wanted to get in good with uh, my best friend who I wasn't his best friend, but he was my best friend. And uh, so I said to my brother, talk to Norman, talk to Norman. And there were these, back then, there were these pewter dishes that people would have pewter with a co- cover, and they'd have these cigarettes all laid in there. It was really nice. And so i picked pick up the top, and I took two cigarettes out, and then I took another two from another pile. And, um, yeah, and so I, I, I had enough to give, my friend to give to his brother, and I kept some. Yeah, and so, yeah. And eventually my mom caught me and was just completely deaf. She, I don't know. If she, I couldn't imagine. She thought I was a chain smoker, but, <laughs> you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just, I was just trying to get in good with my friend. There you go. <laughs>
0: that's a, that's amazing, man. Jeez, jeez. Well, Kenny, I, uh, man, thanks so much. Um I- on behalf of just our entire community and everything like that, uh, thanks again for just sharing your knowledge and, and your time with us again. I, I hope to run into you again, see you play live. It's crazy times we're living in, but um I hope we c- it can happen.
1: It'll happen. i am already been doing it through 2021. I fly all over the place, but, you know, it is danger, dangerous, crazy times. I, I haven't gotten sick, but I hope, you know you know, I hope that stays that way. Yeah, yeah. Man, thank you for having me on. I mean, I love the idea you talk in terms of community. That's a a very, very cool thing. And uh, I will come back. You know, Uh, there's so much. The the next part could be what we didn't talk about.
0: (laughs) It could be. It could be. Well, we'll uh, we'll be in touch with you for sure. And uh, keep in touch with us if you can. And uh, we'll let you know when this posts. All right, man. Take care. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Peace to you. 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 Bye. Bye -bye. Bye-bye. So there you have it, my conversation with Kenny Arnoff. I hope that he takes us up on the invitation to have him back. There's so much to talk about. He could probably have his own podcast, and uh, it would be amazing. So check out his book, Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll. It's been out for a few years, but it's a super fun read. And like Isaac Sanchez said, uh, it is fun to just listen to. So, again, thanks, Rick Malkin, for making that connection. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Ash Sohn. We're excited to have him on board and uh, talk about some new things that are going on with him and uh, what's been happening. So stay tuned next week for that. But for now, everyone, stay safe, uh, stay sane, and thanks so much for listening, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.